0: Arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis, in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane, in ten bulky gunny sacks, are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. This is November 21st, 1963. The day before Kennedy came to Dallas, Patch eats breakfast at the Dobbs House Restaurant, a frequent haunt of Lee Oswald and Officer Tibbet. Richard Nixon is in Dallas on November twenty-first, but this is just bad luck on Nixon's part. Under Patch's bill for the meal is a key with the address and locker number for Pilatus' Foot Locker, four hundred South Houston Street, locker number one o one eight three nine. Patch traces his finger along the motorcade route in the newspaper as he strains to remember what is bothering him about Kennedy's visit. Patch is about to find folders of classified information that will begin to jog his memory. What is to follow in this episode is a slowing down of what was going on in Dallas before the president arrived on Friday morning. This is Episode 9, Return to Dallas, by Robert P. Figgins. Dobbs House Restaurant, Oak Cliff area, Dallas, Texas, Thursday, November 21st, 1963, 9am. Patch folded his hands and his head hung heavy at the window table. He needed to see just what secrets Gladys had in his footlocker. Although he had slept sporadically in the truck, the beat up lady in the hospital emergency room repeatedly drifted into his consciousness. Her talk about killing Kennedy haunted his thoughts. He blinked his stinging eyes as a little dark-haired waitress talked to another waitress. Yesterday, around mid-morning, everyone heard the little creep ranting at me for nothing. I thought the cop in the corner was going to say something, but he didn't. Then she looked at Patch. I'm sorry, can I help you? Patch half smiled. Are you Cindy? You want to talk with Cindy? You can still get me the order, said Patch with a tired smile. Gee, thanks. He spread open the paper he had bought on the way to the breakfast shop. The Dallas Morning News had an unusual headline. Storm political controversy swirls around Kennedy on visit. From Love Field to Mockingbird Lane, along Mockingbird to Lemon, then Lemon to Turtle Creek, Turtle Creek to Cedar Springs, Cedar Springs to Howard, Howard to Maine, Maine to Houston, Houston to Elm, Elm under the triple underpass to the Stemmons freeway and on to the trademark. The airport, Love Field, according to the paper, braces for thousands. Maybe he needed to be at that field when Kennedy landed. What would he tell the Secret Service? Some woman on drugs, half beaten to death, sat in a hospital emergency room and mumbled about the president being killed? Tonight President Kennedy and Jackie would be in Houston. In the lower left-hand corner of the paper, The published parade route caused him to break out in a cold sweat. Are you all right, sir? Pat shook his head, and the blonde set down the coffee. Long night. Joseph Kramer sent me. She nodded, but did not directly respond. Isn't it great about the president coming to Dallas? My God, I've never seen a president. You like Kennedy? He's a wonderful president. This country is so lucky. She skipped back into the kitchen. Patch let the coffee linger in his mouth before swallowing. Again, he checked the motorcade route from Love Field. The motorcade wound into downtown Dallas. Then, instead of heading straight under the railroad track bridge, they had the president turn right and then radically left down the street toward another opening to the Stemmons freeway. At noon, Kennedy had a speech at the trademark building, not too far away down the freeway. Patch's hands shook as he held the paper. Then he quickly drank the coffee from the ceramic cup. Maybe he should at least call the FBI to report Melba's rant. The waitress brought the steamy plates over to the table. She refilled his coffee. He thanked her and cut the pancakes. Food would give him more energy. In the newspaper, he saw that former Vice President Richard Nixon had arrived in Dallas to speak at the Pepsi Cola convention. Apparently, Vice President Nixon had opened up the Pepsi franchise in the Soviet Union. Patch check news about the president. The headline ran, President Kennedy appeals for care food crusade. Every package sent through care bears a message of hope and promise for a brighter future, said the president. Each is an expression of America's sincere concern and friendship for the advancement of peace and prosperity in a free world. I urge all Americans to express their personal concern by supporting the care food crusade for their fellow men. He spoke the words, advancement of peace and prosperity. What was that, sir? Asked the waitress as she ripped the bill and left it on the table, just reading the paper out loud. She smiled and returned to the next table. A brass key was taped on the underside of the bill with the address handwritten, 400 South Houston Street, 101-839. Patch watched the traffic as he munched on the sausage. Then he removed a map of Dallas and moved his finger to the street he had circled in red ink near the golf course. Finding the exact house where they held Shari meant knocking on doors. He checked his watch and finished his coffee. He left a sizable $10 tip under the slip. First he would go to 400 South Houston Street, only a few minutes away on the map. Maybe nagging fatigue skewed his thoughts but the motorcade route stuck in his mind like a stamp waxed impression with his index finger he traced the newspaper route out of love field but he slowed as he reached houston street and the sharp turn onto elm street into the plaza toward the freeway he spoke the name of the plaza out loud as he hailed a cab Dealey plaza Patch climbed in the little cab and gave the address to the pudgy driver. Union Station, asked the driver. Right, answered Patch as the businesses whipped by outside. Patch figured the taxi could cross the viaduct and be at 400 South Houston Street in less than 15 minutes. The small taxi cruised onto the viaduct above the land and a small river. He stared at the city buildings ahead. On the map, a series of structures came into view where he estimated the president's motorcade would pass tomorrow. The red sandstone building with the yellow sign on the roof filled him with an uneasiness he could not understand. He checked behind the taxi as he neared the city. His emotions were mixed. Curiosity drove him to make sense of the past few months. Maybe Pilatus's footlocker would give him insight. He worried about finding Shari on Bar Harbor Drive. Opening the footlocker would not take long. Union Station, 400 South Houston Street, Dallas, Texas, November 21st, 1963, 8.35 a.m. The yellow Hertz rent-a-car sign, positioned atop a sandstone building across the tracks, bothered Patch. That building was like the building in his dream, where he used to work. To his right, a gargantuan stone edifice hovered over the street. The gold lettered sign for Union Station now signaled that he might be close to Pilatus' information in the footlocker. Inside the building, he walked within the crowd to a voluminous room with rows of towering arched windows. He checked the footlockers with one of the porters and then headed down a staircase to the lower level. No one had followed him to the basement area, cramped and cooler, with rows of steel lockers lining the stone wall to his left. Patch had just taken a few steps when he zeroed in on locker number 101839. He retrieved the key and after looking around, inserted it in the lock. The lock turned easily. Inside was a maroon leather attaché case. Patch removed the case and closed the locker. Carrying the case would only draw attention to him. He walked over to the table, facing the lockers, and popped the tabs. On top of the file folder was a small tape reel like he and Shari had used, surveilling Oswald. A black-and-white photograph of Oswald in a light sports shirt and Pilatus in a Hawaiian shirt was taken in the area of Jackson Square in New Orleans. Patch studied the white label, but he had no machine to play back the audio. Joint Chiefs and Army Intelligence Briefing, June 14, 1963. A white envelope lay on the folders. Patch pulled out a note in Pilatus's handwriting. Lee Oswald has been inserted into a plot to kill President John F. Kennedy. Oswald is in constant contact with ONI, FBI, and CIA. A group from Army Intelligence and Defense Intelligence are tracking Oswald. Background information on Oswald is enclosed. He opened the Manila folder to a brief file on Oswald. Pilatus mentioned Oswald worked for the Government Intelligence Services. What he saw confused him even more. A two-page document summed up an unusual program of two boys in a CIA project overseen by James Angleton. Both boys were called Lee Harvey Oswald, and their lives overlapped from Texas to New Orleans and New York City. They entered the service within months of each other. Then, as both headed west across the Pacific, the agency merged the two timelines. Patch held the paper with both hands. Then he pushed it onto the table and removed a Polaroid black-and-white photo from the folder. Pilatus stood with Lee Oswald in Jackson Square in New Orleans. A second photo of Pilatus and Oswald was labeled Mexico City, 1962. Patch noticed a gun barrel under the folder. A shiny Black Nose .38 was snugly placed next to a small box of ammunition. Patch could feel his heart pumping under his breastbone. Another photo showed Oswald with a bunch of Cubans outside a suburban house. Patch recognized Skip and Roy from Tampa. The next photo in color was in a girly club. Oswald sat in the front row and Jack held a microphone on stage. An additional black and white image showed Dave Ferry and a group of boys, including a younger Lee Oswald. It was marked Civil Air Patrol. The last photo was an 8x10 photo of Kennedy with a man named Edmund Gullion taken in Southeast Asia. Pilatus had written, CIA war, no go. The second folder contained classified documents. Patch knew he was in trouble if he was caught with these papers. Oswald's name was highlighted within a program called REDCap, run by the Office of Naval Intelligence in Nag's Head, North Carolina the same city as the blue Chevy. Fatherless boys such as Lee Oswald, wrote Pilatus, were uniquely qualified to defect to the Soviet Union to troll for information or to find Soviet moles. A letter from Lee Oswald asking to join the Marines before his legal age looked copied. Additional classified documents procured by Pilatus detailed Oswald's enrollment at the Monterey School of Languages Further pages built a nifty resume for Oswald as he served as a radar operator tracking the U-2 spy plane at the base in Japan called Atsugi, something the Russians would find interesting. Beginning in 1959, James Angleton used Lee Oswald for intelligence purposes. Oswald was used to, to ferret out moles in the CIA by being dangled as bait in Russia. Oswald was quickly moved out of the Marines on a dependency discharge. They used a phony incident of Oswald's mother being hit in the nose by a falling box of candy. Oswald was ushered out of the Marines in just days. Instead of staying with his mother, Oswald had booked passage three days later on a freighter to Europe. Patch looked around the long stretch of lockers and then read how at Helsinki, Finland, operatives compromised Golub in charge of visas to the Soviet Union. Whereas a visa would take months, Oswald was on a train to Moscow within hours. He relinquished his U.S. citizenship on a Saturday, so it was never compromised. Patch pulled up a chair and read how Oswald offered to give classified information about his radar work with the U-2. Consul John McVicker recruited a reporter, Priscilla Johnson, to help Oswald by interviewing him. Patch skipped ahead to Oswald being helped by the State Department to easily come back to the United States. Laws were circumvented to allow the treasonous defector and his Russian wife to return to the United States. Somehow Pilatus had obtained copies of CIA's 201 file on Oswald. He was being used against the Soviets. There were more classified documents below. Documents from the missile crisis showed Kennedy's generals criticizing the president's decision not to bomb Cuba. Copies of the president's secret letters contacting Khrushchev were next. The mutual exchange upset the generals but saved the world from nuclear holocaust. More classified documents signed by Kennedy showed a gradual retreat from Vietnam. Laos would remain neutral against the wishes of the military. Classified in red ink, June 14, 1963. Executive action. Kennedy address to American University, June 10, 1963. Two, private letters to Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev during the missile crisis, 1962. Kennedy civil rights speech, June 11, 1963. National Guard troops sent to Alabama by Kennedy to allow Negro students to matriculate. June 11, 1963. 5. Plans to withdraw United States troops from Vietnam. 6. Breaking up of the CIA after the Bay of Pigs. 7. Executive Order 11110 concerning silver certificates and abolition of the Federal Reserve. Repeal of the oil depletion allowance. 9. Rejection of Operation Northwoods by President Kennedy. 10. President Kennedy refuses to bomb Cuba during the missile crisis. President John F. Kennedy promoted and signed into law a ban on nuclear testing. Outline of action. To convince the public that the actions against Castro and Cuba by the Kennedys caused Castro to retaliate with Oswald, a Marxist. Oswald will mold his communist persona in New Orleans. The Oswald legend will be linked to the KGB Assassination Bureau by using an Oswald imposter in Mexico City. Surveillance photos to be immediately destroyed. On due date, this may prompt an invasion of Cuba or perhaps a surprise nuclear attack on the Soviet Union. Pathfinder Operation versus the plot against Adolf Hitler. 1. Codename Pathfinder. 2. Plan against Castro approved by the President. 3. Collateral use of the Army Reserves in Dallas and in the Special Services Unit. 4. Assassination will be blamed on a Communist. 5. Assets along with organized crime, sharpshooters and spotters, exiles and mercenaries triangulating at the President. Government and new President will control the public propaganda to blame the Patsy all participant names to be buried and restricted with acronyms and disinformation in hidden locations. Other critical documents showed a pervasive disagreement against Kennedy's view of Africa and Indonesia, the view exposed in a 1957 speech Kennedy gave about Algeria in the United States Senate. Newspaper clippings highlighting opposition to Kennedy's nuclear test ban treaty was stacked inside another manila folder. The last documents were vicious quotes from Cuban exiles from the Bay of Pigs invasion who were rabid in hatred about Kennedy not using air power against Castro. Patch would need to wait to read everything. He counted five reel to reel audio tapes with labels pertaining to Central Intelligence Agency and exile planning groups. A red folder contained a large tape labeled Hoffa, Marcelo, and Traficanti Contract and Threats Against Lancer. The last white envelope had a smaller reel-to-reel tape about oil money. At the bottom of the attaché was a simple piece of white-lined paper, purple trunk in Tucson, Arizona, check 375163, Los Angeles, California. Patch recognized the address Pilatus had given him about Laredo. He looked around in silence with only a slight rumble from distant trains. Carrying the attaché in public was not smart at this time. He placed everything back inside the case, closed the tabs and slipped it back inside the footlocker. For a few seconds, knowing he had been swept up in something extraordinary, Patch took deep breaths. Then he shut the footlocker and locked it tight. He needed to get to Bar Harbor Drive and find Sherry. Bar Harbor Drive, Dallas, Texas, Thursday, November 21st, 1963. a.m., he stared out the taxi window at the multi-floored cabana motel where he had met Jim Pearl with Sherry months ago. Police Chief, Jesse Carey's appeal to the citizens yesterday. Because of the
1: unfortunate incident which occurred here during the visit of Ambassador Stevenson, people everywhere in the world will be hypercritical of our behavior. Nothing must occur that is disrespectful or degrading to the President of the United States. He is entitled to the highest respect of all of our citizens. And the law enforcement agencies in this area are going to do everything within their power to ensure that no untoward accident or incident occurs. We will take immediate action if any suspicious conduct is observed. And we also
0: urge all good citizens to be alert for such conduct. Chief Curry has borrowed 65 additional offices from other law enforcement agencies all leaves have been canceled. For President Kennedy's visit, the chief will utilize firemen, sheriff and state police, Texas Rangers and agents of the Texas Department of Public Safety as well as the governor's FBI. The chief also said private individuals would be empowered to make a citizen's arrest. The taxi veered down the divided highway, off West Redbird and onto Bar Harbor Drive. Patch glanced at the golf course and paid the driver. He exited the taxi at one end of Bar Harbor Drive. Bar Harbor boarded the golf course until it met up with West Redbird, a few hundred yards ahead. As the cab accelerated away, he stood in the open street and realized these people might recognize him. Most of the houses did not answer his steady knock. He figured people had gone to work, but he still gripped the 38 each time as he approached the door. At quarter past eleven, he neared a stockade fence with multiple shrubs and trees outside. He noticed split wood and scuffs across the front door once again he produced a sharp rap on the door he waited and knocked again then he turned to leave the crushed grass on the front lawn and the spent cigarette butts were in contrast with the rest of the neighborhood he walked around the side of the house the backyard also showed considerable wear as he peered over the wood fence a cold piece of metal moved ever so gradually along his neck his eyes swung left Two dark-haired men sneered at him with venomous eyes. The short of the two men had a smooth-barreled handgun pointed at his carotid artery. Senor, you have no business being on private property. I was on the golf course. Sure you were. Are you gonna call the police? He tightened the furrow along his wide forehead. I don't need no police. Get around front. The man grabbed the thirty-eight. Then he removed Patch's wallet from his pocket and pushed him forward. They rounded the fluffy shrubs and steered him onto the concrete slab in front of the front door. The second man twisted the handle and kicked the door. They shoved him inside the cold, dark house. He wondered if Cherry was somewhere in this house. The shorter guy took out his wallet and threw it to his buddy. Gilberto Policarpo Lopez. Right. He dialed the number on the kitchen phone. Gilberto Policarpo Lopez, you're not Cuban. He positioned the phone. This is Fernandes. Put Manuel on. You have a lot of cash. Where did you get it? Patch did not answer, and the guy nodded. Hey, I have someone named Gilberto Policarpo Lopez over here snooping around the house. I think his license is fake. Nothing. Well, what should I do with him? He looks suspicious. Brown hair, about six feet, late thirties. Okay, okay. He hung up the phone. Ruben. Gilberto Policarpo Lopez and I are going to have a little talk. Listen, pal, you got no reason to hold me here. Oh, am I hurting your feelings? He slapped Patch's cheek. Why the hell are you at this house, Gilberto Policarpo Lopez? I told you I was on the golf course, and I am telling you, you aren't dressed for no golf game. Patch remained silent. You have been shaved. Where have you been? asked Ruben. I have nothing to say. Fernandez raced over to Ruben and ripped the gun out of his hand. He jammed the gun hard enough against Patch's temple to break the skin. Listen, you son of a bitch. I've had it with your bullshit. The phone started ringing in the kitchen. Pick it up. He hurried across the room and lifted the receiver. Hello, hello. Yes, okay. I will tell him. Tell me what, asked Fernandes as Ruben set down the receiver. They're going to track him down by description. Hold him here until further notice. I'm not hanging around here all night. Then you talk to Manuel. Fernandez tapped Patch on the cheek with the barrel as he spoke. Why don't you make it easy on yourself, my friend, and tell us just who you are? The phone rang again. Fernandez picked it up quickly. Yes! Okay. What now? They are sending someone over here with a Polaroid camera. See, you miserable bastard, we can find out who you are, and we will. And then we'll kill you. The slender young man squinted as he opened the door. He carried a black Polaroid instant camera. The kid smiled at Patch, but the bulldog Ruben slid by him. Rico is going to take some photographs of you, Gilberto Paracopo Lopez. I'll be right out here on the phone. Any bullshit and you'll regret it. I won't give you any trouble. Ruben grunted and returned to the front room. Rico continued to stare. What's the matter? He spoke in a whisper. Are you Patch Kincaid? Gilberto Palacopo Lopez. Rico aimed the camera. A sudden flash preceded some kind of motor in the camera. Rico removed a plastic film and ripped it off the cover. He took Patch by the arm and spoke softly in his ear. Later this evening, they will bring her to the Cabana Motor Hotel. Room three, two, one. He snapped another photo. Patch gritted his teeth. I don't trust you. She's okay. I saw your photo with her in Jackson Square. Where is she now? He motioned for Patch to be quiet. Patch squinted as he peeled back the plastic on the second picture. With a third flash, Rico exited the door. Patch's eyes adjusted to the flash, and they spoke in Spanish out in the other room. Fernandes appeared a few seconds later. Patch faced the window, but his foot extended back. The door stopped against his shoe. Fernandez stepped forward, and Patch caught his stomach with his other shoe. Patch chopped his throat. Before Fernandes fell, Patch had his gun. He tipped out into the hall as Reuben shouted into the phone. Rico must have already left the house. Patch slid left in order to sneak out the front door. But Reuben turned as he hung up the phone. His eyes opened wide and he went for his gun. Patch fired twice and the white faced Cuban bounced off the wall to the floor. Fernandez, armed with a handgun, fired from the bedroom door, hitting the ceiling. Patch held his gun with both hands and unloaded the remaining shots. Fernandez staggered but fell forward and fell on his face. Patch reached for the gun, but the chamber was empty. He took his wallet, still loaded with money, off the counter, and headed back to the front door. Outside, the neighborhood had an odd quiescence, considering he had just gunned down two men inside the house. He shut the door. His heart beat rapidly as he walked casually around the side of the house and into the thicket separating the yard from the golf course. As he stomped through the brush, he thought about Rico's words. Later this evening, he would find room 321 at the Cabana Motor Hotel. Chapter 60 Southgate Motor Inn, 6525 Arroyo Boulevard, Dallas, Texas, Thursday, November 21st, 1963, 6.05 p.m. The chrome handcuff wrapped around a wall pipe next to the motel window dug into Shari's wrist. Two of the Cubans told her she would need to stay at this motel until they transferred her later tonight. As evening approached, Two cars, followed by a third car, pulled into the tiny motel's parking lot. Frank Sturgis, the man who had forced her out of the cabana lounge at gunpoint, stepped from the car first. Hemming, the giant, exited the other car. Sturgis and everyone else were dressed in black. She counted eight men and an attractive brunette, also in dark clothing. A few minutes later, one of the Cubans opened the door. The brunette woman looked stunned that someone else was already in the room. You stay right here till Frank gets back with the food." He said. Then he shouted to someone in the hall. What is it now? Lumpkin! Lumpkin! Took care of the motorcade route. Who is Lumpkin? George Lumpkin, Dallas Assistant Chief, Army Intelligence. Oh, yeah, 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 good, good. Army Intelligence was also involved here in Dallas, and after being chased by Bullneck and his men, Cherry's fear reached a higher pitch. And he is supposed to seal that book building after... The Cubans slammed the door, and the woman went directly into the bathroom. Sherry wondered what the two men had been speaking about in the hall. The woman emerged a few minutes later and patted down her forehead with a tissue. She nodded and walked over to the bed closest to the door. Then she lay down spread eagle on the covers. Sherry looked outside. One of the Cubans lifted a rifle with a scope out of the first car's trunk. He placed it back inside and slammed the trunk shut. A thin man in a light suit crossed over from the other side of the parking lot. The woman had left the bed and leaned toward the window. I am Marita. We can't answer the phone. Only Frank and Bosch. My name is Sherry. Well, Sherry, I made a mistake. I don't think I want to hang around here. She stepped from the window. We drove all the way from Miami to Dallas, but I'm flying back. Ah, the paymaster, Hunt. Sherry remembered Rosselli mentioning Hunt, Howard Hunt. Why would he be here? The thin man in the light suit that she assumed was Hunt talked with the group. Then Sturgis pulled up in another old dented car. He stepped out with sandwiches and soda, which the other men carried back to the motel. Hunt removed a white envelope from his suit coat pocket. Sturgis reached inside and checked a wrapped bunch of cash. He placed the cash back in the envelope and stuffed it in his pocket. Outside, Jack had just exited his white O'smobile. Sturgis met him halfway in the parking lot. Sherry leaned her head against the wall and closed her eyes. Marita looked inside when the door opened some time later. Jack Ruby. Sherry's mouth hung open. Jack? Ruby. Frank called him a mafia punk. She turned to Sherry. I heard you will be brought to another location when they take me to the airport. And I'll be handcuffed there too. If they get the order you will. If they don't, you won't. Sherry looked away. You don't want to be in Dallas. She stepped from the window. You'll know soon enough. Cabinamoto Hotel, Dallas, Texas, november twenty first, nineteen sixty three. ten thirty two PM. Patch straightened his shirt collar and walked separately from Rico nonchalantly into the Cabana Motor Hotel's top lobby. He stepped behind a spreading green plant shielding out the crowded restaurant. Jack, in a shiny dark suit and tie, stood at the table with people Patch did not recognize. Patch scanned the elevator area, but Jack stormed into the lobby. He screamed that he was in the Bonviant room and then berated a woman at the desk for not telling him about a phone call. She mentioned a man named Martin Still grumbling, Jack marched to the right. Patch waited and then he and Rico headed for the elevators. The elevator chimed and the doors opened. When the car had cleared, he stepped inside and pushed the button for the third floor. Do you know Jack Ruby? asked Patch. He has girls, smiled Rico. Lots of them. Right, he's also involved with whatever's going on with Kennedy. I saw him as I walked to the elevators. I think we're in great danger doors opened slowly to his right down the hallway jim braden from new orleans spoke with another man patch did not recognize why was braden in dallas braden and the other guy headed to another room further down the corridor patch and rico ran into the hall and left to room 321 he heard the tv and knocked on the door yes it was patch he heard the chain inside then sherry opened the door and threw her arms around him Oh, Patch! My God, Patch! He shut the door and locked it as she held on to him. I never thought I'd see you alive again. Then she smiled at Rico. Rico, thank God! How did you two... Rico recognized me from the Polaroid in Jackson Square. Patch looked at the redness on her wrist. What happened to your arm? They handcuffed me to the pipe and a woman named Marita got the key for me. Then she left for Miami. Patch! The Giant and Sturgis, a whole slew of exiles from Miami. They were in the parking lot. Something is going to happen to Kennedy in the motorcade tomorrow, said Patch. I'm afraid they might try and kill the President, said Sherry. Patch thought back to Melba in the hospital emergency room. I'm sensing the same thing about President Kennedy. We need to stop this. Patch opened the door and checked the empty hall. Who would plan to kill the President? A lot of different people but right here jack and a whole bunch of people are in this hotel another interest they're in on this that man jim braden from new orleans is here too they started down the cinder block hallway jack i learned in new orleans has been calling organized crime contacts all over the country he's connected to friends of marcello and the cubans rico then he turned to sherry i haven't seen granby and his army intelligence buddies rico briefly held his wrist Colonel Wilmoth of the Army Intelligence Unit. He spoke with Oswald's wife by phone a while back. Oswald's wife? Army Intelligence has been after us for months. They're in this deep, Patch. That's only part of it. Patch nudged open the steel stairwell door. Whatever's going on here involves great power. Kincaid, many of these Cubans will follow orders. Patch pressed his lips before he spoke. I saw part of the president's motorcade route in the Dallas paper this morning. Oswald works right on that route, Patch. He stopped and held her shoulders. How How do you know this, Sherry? We saw aerial photos, said Rico. People have planned this very well. It is special ops. I know that, said Patch. That's why we've been spying on Oswald, Patch. We could have stopped this weeks ago. We need to call the FBI and the police or go to the newspapers. Be careful who you call, man. I've heard my people. They hate Kennedy. And so do Marcello's people, replied Patch. We need to get out of here now. We'll head down to the basement and outside. Are you sure it's safe? We have no choice. Patch kept his arm around her down five flights of concrete stairs. They climbed up a small staircase and headed for the exit door. Patch led her out the side door behind Rico and ran toward the parking lot and the darkened road beyond. They were about a hundred yards down the road, along a freeway embankment when headlights flashed onto the grass. A police car raced through the cabana parking lot and skidded across the grass at the service road corner. Rico ran ahead. Patch and Sherry jogged toward the residential houses. They were at the edge of a cul-de-sac and several shots were fired from the service road. Rico leaped down the hill. Patch dragged Sherry into the grass and shielded her body as bullets penetrated the soil. Both Rico and Patch unloaded the guns. Somebody yelled through a megaphone that they were under arrest. Put down your weapons now. You're under arrest. The spotlight shined into the grass and across the stockade fence ahead. The squad car attempted to navigate forward but stopped around 50 feet into the bumpy grass terrain. Guns are useless now, said Patch, and they chucked the weapons across the grass. Several other cruisers swarmed into the area as Patch crawled with Sherry under a clump of trees near a chain-link fence. The spotlight moved back and forth over the tree branches. Several shots echoed across the area. Why are the cops firing at us? They have been told about you, said Rico. "Scratch them off the call list, said Patch, as he boosted Shari over the chain-link fence. He took her hand once they were all in the ranch house's backyard. Cops trying to kill us, this is crazy. He'll come around front," said Patch. We need to go back in the grass and even to the hotel. They won't expect that. But Patch," Patch held her shoulders. I know what I'm doing. Trust me. He's right," said Rico. They scrambled to the corner of the yard, where the fence was only three feet off the ground, and easily merged into the woods that led to a drainage ditch behind the hotel. Headlights appeared behind them back in the cul-de-sac. Patch counted out five police cruisers. They scaled the dry concrete pipe and moved up the rocky hill back to the hotel. Once up top, they walked slowly along the shrubs and toward the hotel's front entrance. When they were less than 50 feet from the glass doors, a group of people exited the building. Patch waited next to a maroon Cadillac along the side of the building. Then they all walked directly through the lobby doors. Once inside, he moved cautiously up to the front desk. Rico stepped to the side. Sherry put her arm around Patch. He told the clerk he wanted first floor rooms and repeatedly looked over his shoulder back to the lounge. Rico gave him the thumbs up sign at the end of the counter. After signing, the clerk requested a license plate number in the car's make. Patch wrote down the Ford they had driven in New Orleans in a phony number. He showed his fake license and the clerk handed him the key. They scurried down the side corridor to rooms 126 and 128. Rico, you watch the window for the next two hours and then wake me. Rico nodded and opened the door to room 128. Patch unlocked room 126. Once inside, he locked the car in the door and opened the connecting door. It's unlocked. Rico nodded and Patch shut the door. He and Sherry held on to each other in the large chair in the corner. Can Rico be trusted? He's the only reason we're both still alive, said Sherry parking lot lights reflected on the cars. Now I know why they blocked my memory. I knew Oswald was going to kill Kennedy, and they feared me going back in time. But I did. It's all coming back to me now. Back in time? You're talking ragtime, Patch. No. It was explained to me by Mankiewicz. He's a scientist. He works for the intelligence agencies now and on other timelines. Kennedy was assassinated because I first went back in time. I was retrograded back from 1961 to 2003. I'm not exactly sure how, but I was brought back in time to 1963 and Moon chased me. That's how I ended up on the rocks. She looked at Patch as if she felt sorry for him. Patch, that's a little far-fetched. I know we're all under pressure. Retrograde is when the energy levels bring you back. It's not functioning properly right now. Everything slows down and time moves at a crawl. Retrograde happened to me in New Orleans and Tampa, but it dissolved and didn't bring me back. Why couldn't you remember anything? Because somebody injected me with some kind of microscopic blockers that prevented me from remembering selective things. They found it in my blood in Miami. She sat on the edge of the bed with her head in her hands. Listen, Patch i don't know what they did to you or who you're really working for when did they take you to the safe house at the end of september just after i left you in el paso the Cuban showed up at the restaurant downstairs a guy named frank sturgis he's here in dallas right now sturgis he ran it at me in miami i know who he is he brought her head next to his chest i'm scared patch hunt just gave money to sturgis earlier Hunt is here? Yes. We'll go out in the morning and we'll stop all this. She nodded. And why is Jim Braden in Dallas right in this hotel? We need to go to the right people. They both moved over to the window again. Patch pulled back the curtain so they could see the highway. He pinched his lower lip. Kennedy's trip to Chicago was canceled. I know. The Cubans were all upset about that. Rico stood in the open door. They thought they'd get Kennedy in Chicago. Sure looks that way, said Patch. Valley was arrested and other Cubans are at large. Oswald may have even tipped them off. And Last week they sent me to Tampa. I saw Kennedy speak at a ball field there. I shook hands with him as his motorcade moved through the residential section of Tampa. Shari squeezed his hand. Wow, you met Kennedy? Briefly, I only wish I knew then what I know now, said Patch. It could be just creating a disruption to prompt Kennedy to go after Castro, said Rico. No, that's not it, shouted Patch. I just opened a footlocker where Pilatus left an attaché. This attempt on Kennedy is way bigger than Oswald. He turned to Rico. What else do you know, Rico? One of the mercenaries, Hall. Hall, asked Patch. He turned toward Sherry. Sherry, Hall was one of the guys that followed us in the car out of Tampa. Hall talked a few weeks back about going to Los Angeles in September and getting a custom 30 odd 6 rifle. Oh, damn, said Patch, throwing his head back. Hall was the guy with the thick black goatee. Gun was sold to him by the big guy, Hemming, the giant. Patch, we need to get this information to somebody. Hall and his friend Lawrence Howard and Hemming, they're all part of Interpen, mercenaries. We need to go to the Dallas newspaper. Get them to make this whole thing public. The morning news. And we need to go to that plaza where the motorcade takes the turn. What about Oswald? Where exactly is the place where he works? In the book supply place, in the plaza. Patch rummaged through the papers on the night table. He quickly ran his finger along the parade route as published in the newspaper. Then he looked up. The Texas School Book Depository. We go there early and wait for Oswald to come to work. But I'll call the FBI first. "'Good,' said Sherry. "'I didn't want to tell you about the footlocker, Sherry. "'I had no idea what was in there. "'I was afraid that somebody might get to you.' "'No argument here,' Sherry held his wrist. "'Oswald is the nexus of everything.' "'And the nexus of nothing,' said Patch, "'checking the newspaper address. "'The newspaper office is right down the street from the plaza.' "'Get a few hours sleep,' said Rico. "'I'll watch outside.' Thanks, Rico, said Sherry. Too many people will be looking for us, Patch told them, We have to be careful. The cops are going to be after us, too. I don't know if we can stop this. Chapter 61. Dobbs House Restaurant, 1221 North Beckley Street, Dallas, Texas. November 22nd, 1963, 7.15 a.m. Good morning, Dallas. President Kennedy is speaking this morning at the Hotel Fort Worth. After a motorcade through Fort Worth into the Carswell Air Force Base, President and Mrs. Kennedy will fly with Governor Conley and his wife to Love Field later this morning. Around noon, the President will motorcade through downtown Dallas for a speech at the trademark. Stay with us for full coverage. Rico grinded his teeth outside the restaurant. He continuously scanned the sidewalk and road. He had found Patch and Sherry when they entered the restaurant earlier. How are you doing, Patch? Sherry asked from across the tiny table. Patch held a flyer that had been left on the table. Look at this. Treason. This is crazy. She turned the flyer around and lifted the newspaper. Too many people hate President Kennedy. I'm afraid for his life now. Right here in the paper, Billy Graham told Senator Smathers to tell Kennedy not to go to Dallas. Wait, Sherry. We're very close to stopping this. Patch squinted and slowly exhaled. He leaned toward her and spoke softly. I'm just afraid if we make a call or report this, that we'll be the ones picked up. You saw those cruisers at the hotel last night. What are you saying? Everyone is against us. Don't get me wrong, he said, holding her hand. I fully intend to call the FBI, but it's risky. The Dallas Morning News isn't far away from Dealey Plaza, I say... We let them know too. And if none of this works, then what? Mm-hmm. Then we lie down the road if need be. The motorcade needs to be stopped. Or just pull Oswald out of the corner building. Patch left money under the bill and put his arm around her as they headed toward Rico outside the door. He looked up at the black radio. The president's voice from a speech in San Antonio yesterday filled the restaurant. He and Sherry stopped at the door just like everyone else in the breakfast cafe and listened to the president's words. I think the United States
2: should be a leader. A country as rich and powerful as this, which bears so many burdens and responsibilities, which has so many opportunities, should be second to none. And in December, while I do not regard our mastery of space as anywhere near complete, while I recognize that there are still areas where we are behind, at least in one area, size of the booster. This year I hope the United States will be ahead. And I'm for it. We have a long way to go. Many weeks and months and years of long, tedious work lies ahead. There will be setbacks and frustrations and disappointments. There will be, as there always are, pressures on this country to do less. In this area, as in so many others, and temptations to do something else that's perhaps easier. But this research here must go on. This space effort must go on. The conquest of space must and will go ahead. That much we know. That much we can say with confidence and conviction. Frank O'Connor, the Irish writer, tells in one of his books, I was a boy, he and his friends would make their way across the countryside. And when they came to an orchard wall that seemed too high, too doubtful to try, and too difficult to permit their voyage to continue, they took off their hats and tossed them over the wall. And then they had no choice but to follow them. This nation has tossed its cap over the wall of space and we have no choice but to follow it. Whatever the difficulties, they will be overcome. Whatever the hazards, they must be guarded against. With the vital help of this aerospace medical center, with the help of all those who labor in the space endeavor, with the help and support of all Americans, mm-hmm. we will climb this wall with safety and with speed and we shall then
0: explore the wonders on the other side. Thank you. He said nothing as they exited in a mixture of cigarette smoke and recooked hash. I heard the speech, said Rico, pointing toward the outside speakers. Kitty, is a great leader. The overcast, fine mist accumulated on his face. He spotted a payphone less than 100 yards down the street. They trotted down the road and up to the phone. As the morning traffic buzzed, he checked for the police cruisers and then deposited a dime in the phone slot. She wiped the moisture off his forehead with a napkin as he instructed the operator to get the FBI on the phone. When she barked, he informed her of an emergency. Around a half a minute later, a clear voice sounded in the earpiece. Special Agent Hall, I would like to report a threat as a concerned citizen
1: what is your name sir
0: that's not important i heard cubans on bar Harbor drive in dallas texas talking about doing something in president kennedy's motorcade when it turns by this texas school book depository building in dealey plaza in dallas who specifically made these threats sir patch never answered the agent also There may be criminals staying at the Cabana Motor Hotel who may try and shoot the president in that plaza. Who specifically made these threats, sir? Lee Oswald. He works in the Texas School Book Depository Building. He hung up the phone, and she held out the colored map of Dallas. We head up North Beckley to Commerce. That will bring us to the Depository Building. Patch ran his finger along the map's roadways. He checked his watch, and they started up North Beckley. The FBI will take action. I'm sure alerts are already going out right now. Oswald is in a rooming house on North Beckley, said Rico. Maybe he will walk to work. No, said Patch, moving down the sidewalk at a quick pace. I remember now. He went to see his wife and kids in Irving. He was supposed to have brought the rifle to work. How do you know this? asked Sherry. I just know. At the end of the warehouse drive, Granby stood with two men. Each man had a holstered sidearm. Granby stepped forward with an unusual smirk on his face. It's only a matter of time before we found you, Patch. Right at the end of the operation, Patch, but not quite good enough. You bastards are going to kill Kennedy. Granby bared his teeth. Very good. What are you going to do, Patch? Whined to Johnny Rosselli. You people... You think you just know best and the rest of us are saps, right, Granby? You ready to blame my people for what's going to happen? You've already tried to kill us several times. You're a sucker, Patch. You let Rosselli use you. You don't know that. I do know that. Rico, in a blur, kicked the gun from Granby's hand. Patch scooped it up and jammed the barrel against Granby's head. Good man, Rico. You fool! growled Granby. Kennedy is a traitor. You're the traitor. Drop your weapons. The two men let their pistols fall to the ground. Rico quickly commandeered both weapons. We've got people crawling all over Patch. You can kill me but you won't stop this. Shut up. Patch grit his teeth. You have ten seconds to tell me where your vehicle is. Round the corner of the building. Rico. "'Granby will drive, get them out of town, and dump them in the middle of nowhere. "'Just keep driving until after 12.30, then disappear.' "'Rico's eyes watered. "'You have to stop them from killing Kennedy. "'We will. "'Good luck, my friend,' said Sherry, and she hugged Rico. "'And thank you.' "'Rico leaned toward Patch. "'I will check for you, outside of Ruby's Club.' "'Patch nodded. "'You are committing a federal crime,' said Granby arrest me. If I get the chance, I'll kill you. Rico marched them down the dirt drive. Sherry's hands shook as she clutched onto Patch's arm. Patch, they all want us dead. No, no, we'll get through this, he said, holding her shoulders. Half a minute later, Granby drove the white station wagon up the drive. Rico kept the guns, trained on Gramby and the two men in the front seat car rounded the corner and vanished down a side street. Patch checked his watch. Almost seven. Let's go see if Mr. Oswald is carrying a rifle to work. Let's go.
1: now why everyone in Texas Fort Worth is so thin having uh, gotten up and down about uh, nine times this is what you do every morning Mr. Buck Mr. Vice President Governor Conley Senator Yarborough, Jim Wright members of the congressional delegation Mr. Speaker Mr. Attorney General ladies and gentlemen years ago i said that uh introduced myself in paris by saying that i was the man who had accompanied uh, mrs kennedy to paris i'm getting that somewhat that same sensation uh, as i travel around uh, texas <laughs> nobody wonders what Lyndon and i wear <laughs>
0: Dealey Plaza, Dallas, Texas, Friday, November 22, 1963, 7.46 a.m. Oswald's place of work, a red sandstone structure, appeared like a block building assembled from a child's toy kit. It rose up in the drizzle atop a small hill as they approached from the west. An oversized yellow ad sign for Hertz car rentals displayed the time on a white-lettered digital readout diagonally across the roof. 7:46 a.m. He pulled her up an embankment and crossed the multiple railroad tracks adjacent to a concrete overpass bridge. A skinny man with a mustache and glasses yelled from an office down the tracks. Hey, get off the tracks, you two. This is Union Terminal Railroad property. We're just passing over, Patch called back as he held Shari's hand and continued along the railroad beds. Damn lucky the train doesn't mow you down! Patch waved and they stepped by a silver railroad box and over a steam pipe. Down the bridge embankment, a parking lot and a stockade fence overlooked the roads constructed below the overpass. The depository hovered over a clump of oak trees to the rear. A dirt lot was aligned diagonally to the service road beyond the fence. Cars already filled the area behind the stockade fence. According to the paper, the president's speech at the trademark would occur around noon, four hours from now, after he passed through Daly Plaza. An older, dark Chevy with thin white walls rounded the parking lot. Patch pointed as Oswald, wearing a light jacket with big sleeves, stepped from the car. Whoever drove the car, revved the engine, and stayed behind. Oswald got out of the car and pulled out a paper sack from the back seat. He waited for a short time by the cyclone fence as the driver raced the engine. Just as the driver cut the engine and shut the door, Oswald cupped the bag under his armpit and walked behind the stockade fence toward his workplace. The driver, a tall kid with short dark hair, finally followed him behind. Oswald carries his lunch in the paper bag. Maybe we should just call him back right now. Why take any chances? A dark squad car edged along the road behind the depository. Oh no, cops. Patch turned and took Shari's hand and was about to speak when he observed a second police car moving slowly along Elm Street in front of the depository. Beyond the cruises, a blue Chevy headed south on Houston. He saw the North Carolina plates. The Chevy. They were in the parking lot when I was kidnapped. Naval intelligence? Why are they here? can't be after us he led her back up the embankment near the silver railroad switching boxes along the tracks the guy who had yelled at them was not around they retreated over the triple underpass the freeway traffic moved steadily to the left and the v-shaped stockade fence framed the little hill above the plaza i'd been here before it must have been in the future she looked at him as if he really were crazy he pointed ahead They built a hotel and a huge tower. Why was I here? Patch, I know you think I've lost my mind. If you came back here through time to prevent something from happening to Kennedy, then, well, the important thing is that we notify the FBI. They'll take Oswald out of that building. Maybe that's what the police are doing right now. Or looking for us like they were last night. Mesmerized by the red brick depository building, Pat shook his head as he fought to remember. Then he followed the quick turn onto Houston Street and a second sharper turn onto Elm Street. Main Street actually went straight below the underpass. The motorcade should go straight. Why is it taking a right and then a sharp left? How is that safe? There are tall buildings around here. She looked into his eyes. Not the best route to protect the President of the United States. Chapter 62, Dealey Plaza, Dallas, Texas, Friday, November 22nd, 1963, 10.57 a.m.
1: Jim Wright, Governor, Senator Yarbrough, Mr. Botka, ladies and gentlemen, there are no faint hearts in Fort Worth, and I appreciate, I appreciate your being here this morning. I, Mrs. Kennedy is organizing herself, it takes longer, but of course she looks better than we do, which she doesn't, but we appreciate your welcome, this city's been a great western city, the defense of the west, cattle, oil and all the rest, it has believed in strength in this city, and strength in this state, and strength in this country what we're trying to do in this country and what we're trying to do around the world I believe is quite simple and that is to build a military structure which will defend the vital interests of the United States and in that great cause Fort Worth as it did in World War II as it did in developing the best bomber system in the world the B-58 and as it will now do in developing the best fighter system in the world the TFX Fort Worth will play its proper part and that is why we have placed so much emphasis in the last three years in building a defense system second to none until now the United States is stronger than it's ever been in its history and secondly we believe that the new environment space the new sea is also an area where the United States should be second to none. And this state of Texas and the United States is now engaged in the most concentrated effort in history to provide leadership in this area as it must here on earth. And this is our second great effort. And next December, next month, the United States will fire the largest booster in the history of the world, putting us ahead of the Soviet Union in that area for the first time in our history. And thirdly, thirdly for the United States to fulfill its obligations around the world requires that the United States move forward economically, that the people of this country participate in rising prosperity. And it is a fact in 1962 and the first six months of 1963, the economy of the United States grew not only faster than nearly every western country, which had not been true in the 50s, but also grew faster than the Soviet Union itself. That's the kind of strength the United States needs economically, in space, militarily. And in the final analysis, that strength depends upon the willingness of the citizens of the United States to assume the burdens of leadership. I know one place where they are, Here in this rain, in Fort Worth, in Texas, in the United States, we're going forward. Thank you.
0: About a quarter of a mile north from the plaza, Patch lifted the binoculars he had bought at the Teich Gettner department store downtown. The dense traffic along Elm Street in front of the depository, the concrete pergola, and the stockade fence had been diverted for the parade. As the sun occasionally broke through the haze and the air warmed, He checked his watch and focused on the oversized Hertz sign on the depository roof. In a little over an hour, the president's motorcade would proceed down Main Street, slow, and turn right onto Houston, and bank for a left turn onto Elm. Patch, cops and a plainclothesman, up there. Patch feared they would be apprehended as the men started along the tracks. The railroad guy with the glasses had left his office to the south. Our railroad buddy is meeting them. Patch took her hand and slipped between the lot and the road to the depository. They looped by the depository entrance and circled across Elm Street to the sunny grass expanse across the street. At the other end, the cops on the underpass conferred with the railroad guy up top. Patch faced the depository's brick facade and panned past another building across Houston Street from the depository. The map listed it as the Dal Tex building. A few people milled around the blue and red mailbox below the depository's front steps. Some parade-goers were already under the pergola and along the roadways. Once the cops left, a green pickup truck pulled off Elm Street. On the driver's side in black letters were the words air conditioning. Tools were in the back. The guy had parked tight to the curb below the grass leading up to the stockade fence. The driver pushed open the door and walked around the back of the truck. That's Jack. The heavyset man slouched over the wheel. Another man in his 30s reached over the tailgate. He unwrapped a brown case longer than a yardstick and started up the hill. He wore a gray jacket, brown pants, and a plaid shirt. The case caught on the grass as he went up the hill. Not too far away, three additional police officers conferred around a motorcycle. Why is Jack driving that truck? chariot could be a rifle that other guy just brought up the hill rifle come on we'll follow the railroad tracks and swing around in back of that fence Patch steered her forward as the green pickup pulled away from the curb they crossed the road and quickly climbed a set of concrete stairs a number of people mingled with the cars parked in the back of the stockade fence and some of the railroad men moved along the tracks a few people were in a signal tower set back from the parking lot in the fence he saw no one with a rifle. I'm sure that was Jack. He checked the time atop the depository, 11.22 a.m. She unfolded the map in the sunshine. The Dallas Morning News is right down Houston Street from this plaza. Before we get Oswald out of the building, I say we walk up to the Morning News and simply ask to talk to the editor and tell him the president has been threatened. Patch's eyes bounced from person to person along the parade route. His voice quivered with emotion. Why haven't they changed or canceled the route? Let's get to the paper, Patch. Patch nodded. He focused on each vehicle and passerby as they hurried across the dirt lot. Nothing seemed unusual as they reached the oak trees at the end of the depository service road. He tapped the mailbox as they passed by the stone steps leading inside. Patch pulled Sherry back into the depository doorway. The president's motorcade would pass by this very spot in less than an hour. Back at the parking lot, a man in a plaid shirt stepped away from the stockade fence and approached a stocky man in a blue business suit and black hat. They spoke for a short time, then the man in the plaid shirt returned to the stockade fence area. A policeman followed the man along the fence. Near one of the railroad switching boxes up on the tracks, The stocky man walked directly over to a thin man wearing railroad coveralls and a workman's hat. They chatted and then he returned behind the stockade fence. The man at the switching box fiddled with something near his feet. Shari hit Patch's arm. Jack had just crossed Houston Street. Let's get down to the morning news, said Patch. They moved at a fast clip to the corner and across Houston. Even in front of the depository, people were positioning themselves on the curb to get a look at the president. Patch looked up the facade of the depository as they headed to the corner. Windows were sporadically open across the upper floors. The Dell Tex building at the corner also had open windows. They crossed on to Houston. People were packed along both sides of Main Street to the left. They continued at a fast pace to the north end of the plaza and then south down Houston Street. They turned onto a side street and walked directly up to the Dallas Morning News, a modern tan building with Texas and United States flags outside the main entrance. Little icons in the shape of the state of Texas were embossed on the upper panels. Patchett agreed with Sherry that they approached the editor with their information. At the receptionist desk she asked for the publisher but was referred to the city desk. 20 feet away the ubiquitous Jack sat on a desk and spoke with a salesman and people in the advertising area. They told Patch to come back in an hour. he brought Shari behind a partition when Jack turned. Let's bring Oswald outside. He checked his watch as they retraced their steps out of the building. We're running out of time. A dark-haired and younger-looking Alexander Moon in a blue sport coat and cocky pants walked across the cement. He aimed a pistol at them. He had a distinct, raspy voice and a bold, confident tone. You're not going anywhere, Patch, and you're not gonna stop the Kennedy assassination. Sherry's eyes filled as he looked at Patch. You can't do this. Is this why I came back to stop Kennedy from being killed? Moon's slit-like eyes opened. Don't worry, I'm not gonna kill you unless you run. Now walk slowly around the building. How do you know your other version of yourself from the future was telling the truth? Moon paused and tightened his brow as he escorted them away from the front entrance. Kennedy was assassinated on this day, November 22, 1963, in about 25 minutes, by Lee Harvey Oswald. We could have stopped Oswald a thousand times, said Cherry. Patch's heart pounded as he stared at Moon's gun. Did Geraltta Ego from the future actually show you history books? I heard it all. Oswald fled the scene. Then on Sunday morning... What about Sunday morning? asked Patch. Moon tilted his head back and laughed. That's all you need to know, Patch. Patch lifted his watch again. What do you care if Kennedy lives or dies? You mustn't tamper with history, Patch. Apparently I already have. I was retrograded back to the future from Cuba. How do you know, doctor, that I didn't do something to cause this? The older Moon never told you that. Shut up. You know something about Sunday morning. Why don't you just have Western Union telegraph it to you? As Moon babbled, Shari collapsed on the grass. Moon took his eyes off Patch, long enough for Patch to rush him and kick his forearm with enough force to send the gun end over end into the bushes. As Moon grabbed his arm, Patch produced a flurry of punches to the taller man's stomach. Moon buckled and Patch sprinted for the gun, then he hurled it across the asphalt. Moon, face down on the grass, held his stomach. Patch kicked his chin and then he went unconscious on the grass. Patch took Sherry's hand and they ran back to Houston Street. Patch, you heard him. We have to stop Oswald. We will. We will. To balance the hefty amount of source information within a novel was a challenge. But remember, as we move forward, President Kennedy's life will depend on what Patch remembers and what he decides to do to stop the assassination. On Thursday night, Sherry is brought to a motel in Dallas, where she overhears an abundance of conspiratorial evidence. She finally links up with Patch. We have seen the array of characters at the Cabana Hotel. As Patch and Shari run from the authorities, Patch is beginning to remember what he has been learning. They are going to kill Kennedy tomorrow in Dealey Plaza. And again we hear President Kennedy's voice, this time in San Antonio the night before. Here is the conundrum for Patch and Sherry. The authorities are after them, probably the anti-Castro people and the mob. Patch opts to call the FBI, but as shown by the FBI teletype specifying an attempt on Kennedy's life, nothing is done to stop the assassination. Stopping Oswald seems the only way for Patch to personally prevent Kennedy's death. Only problem is, Oswald is the Patsy and the assassination was well planned and executed. When we return next week, time slows down even more. It will be 2.15 p.m. on November 22, 1963, according to the Hertz clock on top of the school depository building. I'm Robert P. Fitton. See you there.